good there. Thank you, Wes. Um, good afternoon. Nice to see you all. I'm Julio. If we haven't met, I'll help here at Common Garden Tours with Wes and Anna. There's a few others coming. And it's, it's great to have you. Great to see you. We continue our journey through this letter in 1 Thessalonians. Um, and last week, some of us were with us. We were in the Rothsay offices, that very slick beautiful office to be in, but it's good to be back in the, in the Switch Church as well. And we talked about school, that very far gone, maybe dreaded period of life. Um, and I asked the question whether we could remember that schoolmate that we probably all, all had, um, who was clearly the best, uh, the top of the class in every way, more intelligent, better at sport, better looking than us probably. Did any of you know someone like that at school? Any... any Everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> um, if you don't remember that person, that, it could be that that was you, in which case, good for you. The rest of us will forever remember you. Um, and if you were that annoying, perfect classmate, then you would have been a lot like this newly formed group of Christians in, in Thessalonica, this city in, in northern Greece just under 2,000 years ago. Uh, they had become it. They were it, that, that annoying schoolmate. Um, Christianly speaking, they were doing so well. They had left their old pagan idols. Uh, they had begun to trust in, in, in the Lord Jesus as preached by Paul. And despite being opposed and persecuted actively by their friends, their neighbors, their family members probably. And now Paul says that all the other churches in the region are gossiping about how good they're doing, how, uh, what an example they are of, of, of Christian faith. They are the very top of the class. Um, and that Paul, the teacher, we saw in chapter 1, is so thankful for them. Chapter 1, verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we then saw at the start of chapter 2 last week how the Apostle Paul went on to defend his work. Uh, the teaching that he did as he went from town to town in Greece, preaching this gospel of Jesus. And he's now acting like a good teacher. Um, he wants his top student to continue in this way. Uh, and he assures the Thessalonians, and, and therefore he also assures us, that they have received the true message from God. Uh, what they have believed is no fantasy, it's no make-believe, but it's the true message from God. Um, and clearly we saw that the life of the messenger, the life of Paul, shows that. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. He's saying, you remember what we were like, right? You remember it. We were there. We ha you can have confidence that he is the messenger of God. His message is the true message. Um, because of how bold he was, how honest, how selfless he was. Um, as we've read up until 7, the messenger is himself evidence. In fact, he's the best evidence of the message. And now today, from verse 8, we will look at some of the specifics. Uh, it's good to look at specifically, look, good to look at practicalities. Uh, what did Paul actually do when he was among them, uh, among this group of Christians? What was this ministry of his? What did it consist of? And the question we want to be asking is, what is it that produced such authentic Christian faith? What is it? Paul has no doubt that the faith of the Thessalonians is authentic. In chapter 1, verse 4, it says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. He is certain 
uh, not just because of how they responded, but because of what he himself did, what he declared to them, and how he acted among them. So again, the question, what is it? What was the key to true Christian faith? Uh, What is it that creates this kind of top students? And some of us might be asking that question as we try to be Christians in the office, in Rothsay, PwC, Prophet, NatWest. Um, And Paul is giving us today a blueprint of what Christian work should look like. Um, Or perhaps we wouldn't call ourselves Christians, uh, so it will be interesting to see what authentic Christian leadership should be like, according to the New Testament. There are all sorts of views about this, about Christian leadership, about what Christians should be like, um, and as well as, as well as bad examples, that really bad examples that we might have in mind. So what is the gold standard for Christian leaders? And verse 8 finally reads, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Um, And here we see that the key to authentic Christian faith is twofold. Gospel proclamation plus genuine affection. Gospel proclamation plus genuine affection. Um, And in a sense, the first one is very obvious, isn't it? Gospel proclamation, what did Paul do in each place he went? He shared the gospel of God, the good news about Jesus the Christ. Welcome. So gospel proclamation plus genuine affection. Um, That was his job title. He was a gospel proclaimer. Um, The Apostle Paul on LinkedIn, if he had LinkedIn, he probably would have had gospel proclamation manager specialist or something like that. Those titles that you get sometimes a bit far-fetched. That's what he did. That's, that's, that was his job, proclaiming the gospel because that's what Christian work is, to tell people about the offer of eternal life through Jesus. Um, well, this, might not, this might not always seem obvious to all of us. If you stopped a random person just outside here in, in the street and you ask him, what, what does being a, a Christian look like? What, what should a Christian do? They'll probably say something around, around giving to charity, recycle, going to church, following the golden rule, perhaps. But there is no doubt that in the New Testament, the job of the Christian, the job description of the Christian is gospel proclaimer. Um, And sometimes we might have heard this idea that um, it is primarily our exemplary life that does the talking. And that's only partly true. If you look at verse 9, page 986, if you have one of the Bibles. Uh, Verse 9, he says, we shared the gospel. And verse 10 again, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So in a way, you need to talk the talk, otherwise there is no walk to walk. Excuse excuse my bit of poetry, really poor poetry. However, in this passage, Paul wants to draw our attention, uh, not just to what he did, he proclaimed the gospel, that we already know, but how he did it. These are the specifics. We were ready to share with you, in verse 8, not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. The activator of genuine Christian faith is certainly gospel proclamation, along with genuine affection. You had become very dear to us. That, that phrase contains the Greek love word agape, 
Um, John, whose mother tongue is, is Greek, will be able to confirm this, hopefully. Um, agape, you might, we might have heard, is a famous word. In other words, not only we deliver to you the true message, but you, we also loved you. We felt affection, and we did it because we loved you. Um, Wes uh, has this great line um, that Paul was not simply a professional postman. Um, he was a loving one. It's quite a good line. He's not just a professional postman. And I'm not sure whether you know your postman personally. Uh, I don't. But w- what would a loving postman do? Uh, you can imagine him bring the post in a very lovingly way. I'm not sure what that would look like. But w- what was this sharing of self that Paul talks about in verse 8? Um, what does this desirous affection consist of? And love, love is a tricky one, isn't it? We, we, it conjures up all sorts of ideas about what love is. We think of roses and poems and chocolate boxes. Um, and in my old job, um, sometimes I had to um, go and work in the Paris office. That's a pretty cool thing to do. And the most French thing would happen every single day. Uh, the, the head of the office would come in uh, every morning and he would go around each and every desk and would greet each and every person with, with a kiss. Well, three kisses in France. Uh, it's a very French thing to do, and, and that was definitely very affectionate. Uh, as an Italian, I, I, I quite enjoy that, actually. Um, um, and, and, but is that what Paul is asking us to do? Is that what Paul is talking about? And you might want to implement this in your office as it's part of a team-building exercise. Uh, but I don't think Paul is asking us to kiss our colleagues. Um, instead, uh, we're going to draw out three principles from the next four verses in chapter 2. Firstly, labor of love blameless conduct, fatherly instruction. And let's first look at at the first one, labor of love in verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And we can imagine Paul, as he arrives in Thessalonica, as he spends the first few weeks going to the Jewish synagogue, proclaiming this gospel of God explaining from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus really is the king, the promised king from the Old Testament, that he's calling now all men and all women to drastically transform their lives and to treat him as king. Um, and as people believe in this message, they leave their old gods and start waiting for the return of King Jesus. So they start to meet together. And we can imagine maybe John's from Greece, his ancestors inviting Paul the Apostle round for, not for tea, but maybe for a glass of wine and olives and feta cheese and all sorts of other Greek things. Uh, that may, I, I presume they're Greek. I, I hope they are. And, 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 and we said that Paul's job is to teach this message. He is a qualified Bible teacher. And we know that scholars and teachers um, are not usually able to feed themselves unless uh, they have some sort of allowance or a stipend or someone providing for them. And yet, that Paul doesn't seem to need that. Uh, we know from other parts of the, of the New Testament that he was also a tent maker. He had this sort of side hustle that meant that he could travel anywhere and be able to work and to provide for himself so that he didn't have to rely on others. Um, that we might not be a burden to any of you, he says. Why? For the sake of the gospel, so that no one could say to him, that he was a fraud, that he's only after people's money. Um, and so often people think of that about Christians and churches and ch- Christian organizations, that all they want is to um, uh, guilt trip you into opening your wallet. 
but that's not authentic Christian work. Uh, in fact, that is not what Paul did at all. He worked hard for their sake. And also, I don't need to explain to any of you what working night and day um, looks like. Uh, if you're working for a consultancy firm around here, that's probably an accurate description of your working hours. Um, but can I suggest that this is potentially an accurate description of those of us here who are Christians? Um, we commute here three, four times a week, maybe more. We answer emails, we duplicate PowerPoint slides, all to make a living, pay rent, send the kids to school. What if I told you that, like Paul, as Christians, we work night and day, answering emails, duplicating PowerPoint slides, so that we can proclaim the gospel of God? Yes, we do work hard, hopefully not all night long, every night, but we do so not merely to feed ourselves, but so that we can be gospel proclaimers in the office the Lord has placed us. That's our primary job if we are Christians. Paul here is not praising hard work for the sake of it. He doesn't think that working 65-hour weeks for the sake of a great career is a good way of spending 45 years of your productive life. But he is saying that hard labor and toil done for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of those who might hear it is what Christians do. That's why he worked so hard. Not because he had to or because he enjoyed it particularly, I don't think, but so that they might hear God's message from him free of charge. So that's labor of love. Verse 10. You are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. Paul's labor of love was characterized by also by blameless conduct. Um, last week I mentioned T.B. Joshua, the Nigerian televangelist whose abuse and deception have been covered by a recent BBC documentary. Has anybody heard of it, seen it, read it? It's appalling, isn't it? It's awful to think about all the people that have been deceived for so long. And we might think of others, uh, so-called Christian leaders who have used the Christian message to advance their own name and increase their own purse. And perhaps we have experienced similar abusive leadership ourselves. So the actions of these pretend Christian leaders is what disqualify them. Clearly, they're not qualified for that role. Whereas Paul's actions are what qualify him. Um, the Thessalonians are, in fact, witnesses of this, that as he talks the talk, he also walked the walk. Excuse my poetry again. Mind you, there is talk, as we've said, but, here's the last bit of poetry for the day, without the walk, the talk is just empty talk. The message of the gospel is confirmed and magnified by a conduct that is holy, righteous, and blameless. And that is a challenge for all of us, isn't it? I'm just going to turn this off. There we go. So blameless conduct. As I said, our primary job in the office is to proclaim the gospel of God before being project managers, insurance brokers, consultants, chimney sweepers. But the conduct of gospel proclaimers is that of someone who works hard and who is blameless. Above reproach at home, at the desk, at the pub, during the coffee break, 
our Christian witness doesn't excuse us from proclaiming, and our proclaiming doesn't excuse our conduct. In the next 12 months, I, I read on Google that 2 billion people will be going to the polls in, 50, in probably 50 different countries across the world. Um, wannabe presidents and party leaders will be making all sorts of pledges and promises to us voters. Um, how will we discern good leadership from bad? That's a good question. That will be our question. Um, who here knows their MP personally? Sort of, Phil. <laughs> Um, it's really hard when you don't know the person, isn't it? It's hard to discern. Uh, we can't be, um, we can't be in, the, in, the, in the candidates' homes. We can't see them, uh, how they treat their spouse, their kids, what they do with their money. But if we could tell, that would be, that'd be useful, wouldn't it? Uh, it, might, it might change the way we vote. And the Christians in Thessalonica could tell. They lived with Paul. There is no better proof. There is no substitute to seeing the life of a teacher and of a leader. And in fact, ideally, we should be all as Christians in a position where we can tell, at least in part, if our Christian leaders are indeed above reproach. And these are also very challenging words for me personally as I teach the Bible more regularly, perhaps. But also for any Christian who spends most of their working hours at the office, um, because our boss and our colleagues, they also can tell um, whether our lives live up to our message or not. So Paul is given a blueprint so that they themselves and we ourselves might follow it, marked by labor of love, blameless conduct, and finally, fatherly instruction, verse 11. For you, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Last week we saw Paul describing himself um, as a nursing mother. And I t- talked a little bit about my mum, and I will not repeat that today. Um, and in verse 7, and now he describes himself like a father. We said that Paul is no professional postman, but instead him, we see him as a passionate parent. It's another good line. Um, He describes the role of the father as that of an instructor. And he uses three different words, exhort, encourage, and charge. Exhort is a stronger appeal. We can imagine uh, dads on the sideline watching their kids playing football. Come on, shoot! Uh, Some dads in my day used to say, dive! That says a bit more about the sporting culture where I'm from. Um, Whereas encourage is a gentler word, uh, more like a dad taking his son or daughter aside, speaking kind words when they're feeling down. And charge has the idea of insisting, even when they get things wrong over and over again, but always wanting what's best for them. So not a professional postman, but a passionate parent. Um, And there are two things worth noticing here. The first, that word, or that phrase, each one of you. Paul, like a good parent, is interested in each individual and in his or hers well-being. He's not looking for a following. Um, He's not obsessed with numbers. He's not in charge of this big pyramid scheme with a bunch of faceless subordinates. Um, But he dedicates time to each individual so that they might grow day after day waiting for the glorious kingdom of Jesus. And the second thing worth noticing 
is the fact that this is a very kind of affection from the one we are used to. Uh, we think of affection normally as, as being nice, uh, not getting in the way, offering coffee or a round of beers from time to time. But Paul's care is not abstract love. It's not just about being a, a decent bloke. It's genuine affection with a purpose. Uh, we, we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Um, it's a care that ultimately seeks growth in individuals that wants to see them going from point A to point B to point C, walking each day in a way which is more and more like Jesus. And that is what good parenting ultimately should be. I'm not, uh, I'm not a parent myself, so I don't know very much about it. Maybe Mark or Robert or Philip can confirm this. I guess if I had a child, I probably wouldn't want him to remain a five-year-old for life. Uh, I guess that would be, that'd be terrible. That would be sad. But Christian genuine affection is not letting you be yourself, but it's generous care which seeks growth in each individual. And there might be some um, in our offices whom we might be able to get alongside and with whom we could do this kind of caring work. Um, You might already be doing this work with somebody, um, and if not, it it might be worth thinking about who that individual might be for me. Um, something for us to think about. Now, there are so many good things about this kind of leadership if, when we look into it. And, and if you're not a Christian, uh, if you're looking into Christian things, you, and you have seen this exemplified in any way, even just in a glimpse, then you will probably agree that it is beautifully different from all examples of leadership that we see anywhere. And if you have, may I suggest that this could be something worth looking into Uh, the reasons behind this utterly unique kind of leadership. So to conclude, we go back to school. Um, What creates top-of-the-class students? What is is it that produces authentic Christian faith? Um, Some of us might have been praying, inviting, or encouraging people at the office or friends or neighbours for many years, um, hoping to share with them this message about Jesus. Well, we have here a blueprint for effective Christian work. We have seen uh, the bold proclamation accompanied by genuine affection, labor of love, blameless and transparent. Um, Now, I should say this kind of work doesn't guarantee Thessalonian-like response every time. It's not uh, always successful necessarily. It wasn't like the whole of Thessalonica responded so well to Paul. It was just a bunch, a group of them. But imagine what it would be like to see one or two examples of this kind of Christian work in each office in this part of London. Um, In the case of Rothsay, maybe 25 examples, because there's so many of you. Think of the impact it would have. Shall I pray? And then we have a few questions on the sheet we can discuss around our tables. Our Father, we thank you for the example that we have in the Apostle Paul. Thank you that... His work, his life has been witnessed on paper for us to read today. Please help us ponder on these words as we go back to our offices. Help us uh, think hard about ways in which we can exemplify this kind of life every day.